I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Carol Taylor is one of those guests who uh, needs no introduction. She's well known in this city, this province, and perhaps the country too, serving with a number of organizations and institutions. BC's Minister of Finance, 2005 to 2008, Chancellor of uh, Simon Fraser University and Victoria College at the University of Toronto, and uh, was elected to Vancouver City uh, Council twice and to the British Columbia Legislature. All this and uh, the number of boards she's chaired, Vancouver's Port Authority, Vancouver Board of Trade, the CBC, Radio Canada, BC Business Council, the Federal Economic Advisory Council, the Trilateral Commission, uh, have uh, yielded a CV that anybody would want for themselves. All this after a successful career at the CBC and CTV, where she was uh, one of the first hosts of Canada AM, She's returned to broadcasting this fall with a new series on Czech BC Legends. It's a 26-part series of interviews she's conducted with notable, memorable, and important figures in the province, among them Rick Hansen, the late Joe Siegel, Iona Campanolo, Shush Madat, and Beverly McLaughlin. It was uh, while watching on a Thursday night a few weeks back that I wondered aloud on Twitter why she shouldn't be interviewed, being a legend herself. And thanks to her son Chris Taylor, senior correspondent with Reuters, he helped get us together for this interview we taped last week. We uh, talk about the new show, interviewing, and uh, just a few of the aspects of her uh, storied life and career and more. BC Legends is on Thursday nights at 9.30, and uh, it's available on the Check Plus app. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Carol Taylor. Ms. Taylor, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, the uh, the BC Legends shows is such a good fit for, for um, Check's Thursday lineup i think they're calling it the homemade lineup um and you as host you you're you're you're, um you make the show compelling because you you draw these stories out from these people whose idea was it to do this show well it was actually mine and it was from a couple of years ago it came about because a good friend of mine gordon smith who is one of bc's famous artists Mm. I had interviewed him off and on over the years or gone to dinner with him, and he'd always tell these stories about, for instance, when he and Jack Shadbolt came back from the war and they didn't have any money, so they helped each other build their houses. And he'd tell stories about Emily Carr. And then, of course, he passed. And I shouldn't have been surprised. He was a 100. But I was so angry at myself that I had never recorded those stories because now they're gone. And so I started to think about all the people who have been important to British Columbia and Canada and wanting to preserve their stories somehow. And so the intention initially was I would do hour-long video and audio, but interviews Uh with people who fit, fit this criteria and post them online, you know, forever, so that hopefully if there were journalists or historians who wanted to know something about B.C., you'd hear the stories in people's own voices. And so I hadn't been thinking about television, but along the way, Czech TV heard what I was doing, recording these, and asked Mm -hmm. if we would cut a half-hour TV version of each of them. So that's what we did. And and they're so, um, as I said a moment ago, compelling to watch because um, you put the guest at ease that they're able to share a great deal. And essentially they're talking about their life. Um, You you draw out stories about their their childhoods, about their their successes and sometimes failures in business and and, in life itself. Um, I'm fascinated watching these things as someone who talks to people 
Um, what what's the key in terms of, of say putting someone at ease like that? I mean, you can't fake that. And, and is where you do it is that is that is that something that that you consider as well in terms of say making the guests comfortable, perhaps? There are a lot of factors that go into it, but I think first of all, you have to care. I think mm. people do know when you care about their story and want to bring it out. In terms of location, we've done it in various places. Some people like to have it in their own home so you get a sense of how they live. Some absolutely don't want that, and so we do it in the studio. So it changes with each of them. But I really think, first of all, I do as much research as I possibly can. Then I do a lot of thinking about what it means because the surface that you see in the press is not really the story behind and so I'm always thinking about well I wonder why they made that decision or how did they feel about that in their own voice and so I guess it's curiosity as well and when I have a chance to sit and really listen and I think listening is perhaps the most important thing mm. listen to what people have to say and then follow their their trend because I may think I have got the arc of the story before I start but often I'm surprised by what it is that people want to tell me because this is their story. It's not my story. And just to follow those lines and see where it leads, uh, I, I just love it. Yeah, there's a marvelous moment in the Rick Hansen interview, for example, where um, you ask him about people that he admires, I think it was, and that was a line of questioning. And, and um, he becomes quite moved in the process of recounting a story about a particular friend. Yes. And I was moved. Yeah. yeah. And I think you have to let people have space and not just be jumping in with another question, but let them have space. So there are 26 episodes, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Are they all done now? I have recorded all of the hour-longs, and mm -hmm. what we are doing now is editing. We're a few ahead of each week that goes to air. And our agreement with Czech is that we wait until it's been on television. Then we post both the TV version and the longer version online. Yeah, I've, I've been watching the longer versions because I, I, I like sitting with long-form pieces. And um, I, I can't remember if it's on the, on the broadcast one, but there's a wonderful moment in the, in the interview with Shush Madat that, that um, I quite enjoyed. It, it, you asked her about her legacy. And... Um, she did this wonderful thing that, that I think most interviewers would like to do, and, and that's <laughs> flip the question on to the interviewer. Yes. <laughs> and so, so you're compelled now at this moment to, to uh, list off these things that, that you think she'd be remembered for, and, and she stops you when you say interviewer um, and because she says of, of all the things that she's done, that's the thing that, 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 that she likes. And I, I found that special because as someone who <laughs> interviews people, um, that's um, that's something that we all aspire to, I guess, isn't it? And with the longer interview, you'll see how hard it was to edit down to half-hour versions. Mm. That's been the hardest part of this job because there are stories that you just have to leave out and hope that people will go online to, to hear all of it. But uh, I find interviewing people and discovering their stories has been one of the most rewarding things. I've done a lot of different things in my life, but I can remember when I was doing W5, and uh, a friend of mine, a woman producer, she and I thought, you know, really, wouldn't it be wonderful just to do features of interviews with mm. people? 
And so we went to Tom Gould, who was the head of news in at that time at CTV, and she had done up this beautiful proposal, and I made the pitch about how important these stories were. And I'll never forget, he said, oh, Carol, people aren't interested in people. They're only interested <laughs> in politics and action. And so, of course, we didn't get to do it. But within a year, Barbara Walters started her famous series that yeah. was just that. And so life has twists and turns, and so the, I feel this is just a gift that I've been able to come back to it. Well, what you bring in, in these conversations, and, and you've, you've always brought it in, in the various work that you've done over the years, is curiosity, I think. That's, that's one of the, the, the skills I think you, you bring to it. But what's your daily routine, say, in, in keeping informed? Uh, what news sources do you check? Do you use social media at all? No. Sorry, but I find especially, because it was just coming on when I was in politics, and mm. it became very nasty very early for people who are public figures, and I just decided I was not going to let that negativity into my life, so I just have not done social media. But when I get up in the morning, I take two papers still. Mm -hmm. uh, I take the Globe and the Vancouver Sun, and then I turn on the television cable news and do a lot of flipping, and I spend at least a couple of hours every morning just trying to see what's changed overnight, anything special that's happened, what are some analysts' point of view, trying to understand situations. So that's a good bit of time before I then start my day and, and try to apply some of that knowledge. And... and um in terms of, say, the Internet itself, like, like um, did you turn online for, for, for news, say? What I do when I'm traveling, and before COVID I used to travel a lot, mm -hmm. that's when I do it all online. But I find that online is not as complete or as satisfying for me as having a newspaper and turning the pages because, you know, there's serendipity. You just happen to turn the page and, oh, you know, there's an interesting story about something I never would have looked up. Yeah. And so I find that online I get the headlines, but I don't get some of the, the richness. Now, I'm the first to admit that probably I'm one of the last ones still doing print newspapers, and I guess they'll probably disappear, which is too bad. But I'll keep using them as long as I can. Yeah, I, I read the Globe and Mail on my phone, and, and they have the, this app where you can sort of flip the pages on the screen. Right. And, and I find that fascinating because you're right. I mean, I, I will check in on online, say, the, the Globe or the New York Times or the Sun even, and uh, throughout the day. But, but there's nothing like seeing sort of that, I guess, draft of history, if you will. That, that, that on the page itself, and, and even if it's on a screen, it still feels like I'm reading the paper. Yes, and um, I've got a friend who's involved intimately with the print business these days, and he's pretty pessimistic about what's, what's going to be happening, so we'll all adjust. Yeah. What do you, what do you think that says, though, about, say, our um, role as a citizen if... if uh, people aren't doing like what you're doing, say, young people especially, they don't turn to, say, traditional forms of media at all. No, and it's discouraging sometimes when there's some important public policy discussions going on and you'll start to ask someone their opinion about it and perhaps they're not even aware of it. So uh, the Edelman organization does this big trust survey. It's international, and they've been doing it for years. 
And it's quite discouraging to see how little trust there is in the media, how little trust there is in politicians, and how little trust there is in lawyers. I always say, I do a lot of speaking with university students, and I always say, I, you know, I've had the privilege of working in the two least <laughs> trusted <laughs> careers, you know, journalism and politics. Uh, but it really is quite important and profound to realize that we've got a problem in our our democracy and our sense of the world if we don't know where to turn for legitimate facts and news. I find it with television, so television's my background, mm -hmm. and I, I cannot, or I find it very difficult to find a particular cable station or network that I absolutely trust. So Fox will lean to the right, and CNN will re lean to the left, MSNBC even more to the left, and CBC leftish. And so you can't, if you just listen to one network, get the rounded picture. So I do a lot of flipping, and I try to listen to all of them and get the different points of view and then make up my own mind. But it is a, a sad commentary how we're all getting into our silos. We certainly see it in politics, but I see it in media, which was my background. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not good for anybody. And so the, the way things are, the, the discourse itself, having conversations with people, talking to people it's, uh, on, the, and on their own, say, that's gone down a great deal. I mean, we can, we can point to Trump, say, for, for a lot of that. But um, it was going down that way anyway, wasn't it? You know, going back a lot, I remember that when I felt that journalism changed was with Watergate mm. and Nixon. And all of a sudden you had two reporters who did really good work and they discovered all of the things that were going on that were wrong in the Nixon administration with the cover-up and everything. But what happened was all of a sudden I felt journalists were looking and saying, oh, I can be the story. And number two, oh, all politicians are hiding something. We've just got to figure out what it is. And I really felt a sea change there that um, was not a positive one. And, of course, now it's really exaggerated in terms of the celebrity of, of reporters and um, politicians who, um, you know, it's hard to get good people into politics now. They, the abuse is huge. And uh, do they want to expose their families to this? I ask almost everyone when I'm interviewing them, and especially when I'm asking students, I say, would you consider politics mm -hmm. or would you consider public service? And almost never does a young university student say yes. Yeah, yeah. it's discouraging itself. Uh, was that one of the reasons why you didn't stay in politics longer? No, I just believe that politics is public service and not a career. And I wish more people would take time out from whatever their career is, give their best for a period of time, and then go back to the real world. Because when people make it their career, I think there's a great danger of becoming disconnected from what people are really worried about or thinking about. And it gets so inside Ottawa, for instance, or inside Victoria. It just gets uh, disconnected from real life. And so I, I did it because that's the way I think it should be done. I did it two different levels, so I had quite a space of time. Mm -hmm. But was very glad to do it. And I also came out 
feeling very positive about the experience and believing if you have an agenda and if you have some ideas that you really think are important to bring in, you can do it. If you go in, though, just for the glory, I think that you're going to be doomed to being pretty depressed at the end of it. I guess a lot of people assume that you didn't stay longer, say, in um, municipal politics. You were there for two terms, four years. Um, you were in uh, Victoria for one term. That's four years. Um, people assume that you, you, you didn't stay longer because you didn't enjoy it. Yeah, well, that would be incorrect. I did, and uh, especially being Minister of Finance was a fantastic job and opportunity. And I really had the best deputy minister you can ever imagine. That was Tamara Vrooman, mm-hmm. who is now running the airport, thank heavens. But she eventually left to run Van City as well. But she and I, I think, if I may sort of say something for her as well, yeah. but I think we made a really good team and worked together. And the small group in finance and treasury that I spent all of my time with were such positive strong intellectual people that really were in it for the right reason. So because of that experience, I came away thinking it's just magnificent, it's wonderful. So, mm-hmm. And then with municipal, I did do it for two terms and got involved in a lot of the issues that I thought were important and then felt, okay, it's somebody else's time. I do think the baby boomers, of course, I'm... I'm one of them, but the baby boomers have hung on too long to too many senior positions. And let's just look at the United States with mm-hmm. Speaker of the House and the President and, you know, and the would-be and was President, you know, late 70s, 80s. I, I think that we blocked a lot of people who were coming up and should have had their chance at leadership. And now, as they're going to be forced off the stage it will probably jump down two generations. So I think that it's a mistake. I, may, I think that in your 80s and 90s, if you're able, you should still be contributing and working and consulting and hopefully using some of your wisdom. But don't block the major leadership positions. What, um, um, in terms of, of your time in politics, the partisan nature of it, I mean, it's very different. Um, now than it was in 2009. But even going back to your time at Cambian 12, did that part of the job, did, did say, having to go up against somebody who was of a different, say, party or a different um, um, sort of political perspective, was that discouraging at all? Well, the party system was a little bit more scattered when it was uh, Vancouver politics. And in fact, I'm sure that it still is, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sure you remember the fact that I didn't even make the nomination of the right. NPA party. So I had to make a decision at that point. Why was I interested in doing this? And if it was to serve and to try to do my best, I would run as an independent. And that was probably the best thing that ever happened in my political life, the fact that I got booted off the NPA nomination, because I was able to go into council, and I never knew what the other guys were doing, because they all cope caucused over there and NPA caucused over there. So I would just read the material, think mm-hmm. it through, talk to experts if I could, and then go in and make a decision. So I felt totally free. It was a bit brutal going into provincial politics because there it is an absolute party system. And so I didn't have any difficulty 
with, for instance, uh, John Horgan was there mm-hmm. when I was there. And we became good friends. It didn't matter that we were on opposite sides. Joy McPhail is now one of my really good friends. And, you know, she was extremely strong on the NDP side. So it wasn't difference of opinions that bothered me, but you do run into some nasty people, and that really bothered me. Yeah. Like there were, even in Vancouver, some of the um, the nasty folks or the folks that you felt were not telling the truth, that bothered me. But coming up against different opinions, I always thought that was a chance to learn and maybe change my mind or maybe change their mind. You did an interview with Chris Galis. Um, this was before the pandemic. It was 2018, I think. Uh, it was part of the, the, the leadership series that they aired on, on Global um, where you mentioned the, the um, in passing the, the NPA nomination fight, I guess it was 1986, um, where you didn't make their slate. And, and you, you mentioned in passing that, that Gordon Campbell wasn't happy with you running as an independent. Is, is, is that correct? No, oh, that's very correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, because you see, the background for people who don't know is that the NPA, I think we're trying to do the right thing by saying that when you voted for a nomination, you had to vote for 10 people because you couldn't just pick your one favorite and ignore the whole slate because 10 people had to run for alderman. So they said you must vote for 10. Well, there was a particular group that um, didn't understand English so well, and so what they were told by Gim Huey Mm -hmm. was that just vote for the the first 10, because that was simple to say, rather than say, go pick this one and this one and that one. And so just vote for the first 10. Well, that became an alphabetical vote, and I was Taylor way down the list, and so didn't make it. And so, of course, I said, I don't believe that this is a good way that we should be nominating people. And I was asked by various folks to, um, you know, that's just how politics works, and it was the impression was just be a good girl and be quiet and go away. And that obviously <laughs> did not sit well with mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I know I can't win as an independent because no one had on a citywide vote, but I'm going to stand up and say that I think if we're going to change politics, we've got to stand up and say it. So I did. And then two years later, um, you ran as an independent, and that's the election where you topped the poll, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Was there any movement in, in, in just before that election, say, to get you on the NPA slate the next time around? No, we weren't really on great terms. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, being told that um, that you should be quiet or, or be a good girl, say, I mean, was that something that you heard a lot early in your career, and, and, and how did you deal with that? Well, I think that that particular example is a political example where mm-hmm. don't rock the boat, we're all in this together, and just this is the way it works, and you're new to this, and just go away. But So I didn't run into that in media, but I did have a lot of people questioning, you know, as a woman, like, who are you, and why are you here, and, uh, you know, is this the role you should be playing? I can remember starting Canada AM the first uh, co-host with mm-hmm. Percy Saltzman. And even though they had pursued me, because I'd been in television for quite a while by that time, because I started in high school, they pursued me and convinced me to do it. And I was doing it. But I had to fight 
to make sure that I got to do some of the political interviews and not just recipes. And so that was, uh, you know, it was always a bit of attention. And then I found out at CanDAM as co-host, I was getting paid half mm. of what my male co-host was getting paid. And I found it out by accident because he went storming through the newsroom one day yelling about his salary. <laughs> and I thought, oh, whoops. So I went to see the executive producer, Don Cameron, and I said, Don, you're not going to believe this. I was so naive. <laughs> I said, I'm getting paid half of what Percy Salson's getting paid. And he looked at me and he said, well, and I said, that's not fair. He said, Carol, life is not fair. And that was it. It was the end of the discussion. It wasn't, oh, well, let me move your salary up a bit. or yeah. No, it was just, no, that's that's the deal. So <laughs> it was another learning experience. But CTV was good to me. I have to say over the years they gave me major hosting positions with CanDAM and W5, sent me to cover the Yom Kippur War. And so I have uh, no complaints whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when... when um you assess, say, your career. Would being Minister of Finance here in BC, would that be the high point, say? It's certainly, I, I think probably yes, although I have to say what I'm doing right now is really a high point from my journalism point of view. Mm. Um, but I've had so many interesting positions that they all they all had a place in forming me and uh, broadening my experience and opening my mind. So they all had a place, but Minister of Finance was fantastic. Yeah. I, mean, I was looking back at the time that you were there, and, I mean, you were often cited for, for say, the, the labor piece that you brought ahead of the 2010 Olympics. Yes. Uh, I'd forgotten the carbon tax was, was during your time. Oh, boy, was it ever. That was, the, that was a biggie because uh, the Premier, Gordon, decided uh, in August, he goes away every August, or he used to, out to Hawaii, and he'd read books, and then he'd come back, and we always had sort of, that would be the assignment for the next year, and he came back thinking about the green society and what we could do. So what he announced um, in the January-February period was that we were going to all, each ministry, each cabinet, look at everything in their in their area and see how you could do it better from a green or an environmental point of view. So I was finance. And so that was my assignment, look at this. And one of the things you have to do with tax is be really, really careful because you can't say anything in public because it will move the market. Because if we had suggested we were going to bring in a carbon tax, well, there would be certain companies that on the market would go through the roof because they were clean energy, and others that might go in the tank because they'd have to pay carbon tax. So we couldn't say anything. So we had this very tiny group within finance, I bet it was only about six of us, looking at, is it a good idea? What models are there around the world? There weren't any that were comprehensive like we wanted to do. There were some that just would put it on gasoline and some put it on something else but we wanted to do comprehensive so we started modeling and we did models i don't know for how many months and i can't count how many models where we'd say well well if we put it on like that what about a senior who's living with an old furnace and they're going to have to pay a huge bill that they won't be able to pay okay well we can compensate that way well what about a family of four up north that has to have a big pickup truck and they're going to just get nailed on that well okay what will we do about that 
And so we kept playing with modeling. And what about businesses? Because, you know, if business is not on side with this, it will never stick as a policy. And so we kept doing it and doing it. And I really was happy with the model we finally ended up with. But we kept it so quiet until the budget day when I was to introduce it. And that's when we told all of caucus. And, of course, I can't say that all of caucus was keen (laughs) about it. But we had to just keep it so quiet until we introduced it. And uh, I still believe it's the, they've changed the model now. Even uh, Christy Clark changed it because she started to move away from it being totally uh, revenue neutral, which I thought the public don't trust politicians, and they won't trust me if I say, oh, give me that extra billion dollars. I promise I'll just play, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I'll do wonderful things with buses. So we made it all, everything went back in tax cuts to individuals, to seniors, Two businesses, and I think it was a it was a solid model. I've talked to um, Harvard University a couple of times about it because they were really interested in the model. I've talked to Stanford when George Schultz was there. He wanted me to do a class with his his fellows uh-huh. to explain how we were doing it and, and how it actually not only got passed, but the government didn't immediately get defeated, which what happened in Australia. Yeah. So it, that was a really great experience too. And and um, you know that's something that's been talked about elsewhere. But but when 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 you put it in, um, you didn't have an example, say. No, we had to design it. That was yeah, modeling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there were numerous times over the last. I've been watching you on television do interviews and the sort, and and you you've always been somebody that I've always wanted to talk to. Um, and over the last thirty years, say, um, there has there have been uh, jobs that, that that people have have offered you. Um, some some you've taken, some you've not taken. I'm, I'm curious about the ones you didn't take. Say running for office federally. I mean that must have been offered numerous times by by different leaders of, of different parties. Even um, do do you um, do you look back at some of those jobs that you didn't take and, and wonder um, if you had taken them? Say. Well, I can't say I never look back. I try not to look back, but there were always reasons. And I I said to a, a group of students once, well, I'm not a risk taker, and they started to laugh. And I <laughs> said, well, then they said, well, look at your career. You know, you really have done some quite different things that were a bit like jumping off a cliff. So I don't say I'm not a risk taker anymore, but I do it with so much thought. And I try to think of all the pluses and all the negatives and, you know, how does it work with your life and not. And try to really think it through before I take it. Now, I've made some mistakes in the one, some of the ones I've, I've taken. But I try, if, if I realize it's a mistake, I try to get out as soon as I can. Because, you know, there are some situations you just can't change. But I can't think of anything specifically that I really wish I had done. Uh, You know, Jeffrey Simpson, the Globe and Mail columnist, he and I are involved with the Trilateral Commission, Mm -hmm. which is Rockefeller's sort of think tank. And so I was just back recently uh, at a meeting, and uh, Brian Mulroney was there, and Brian came up to say hi. And Jeffrey Simpson said, Carol's the one that I kept pushing in my column because I wanted her to take on the leadership of the Liberal Party, and she wouldn't listen, and she never did it. (laughs) 
but it that was you know that's just a bit of history it was a moment in time and i didn't think it was right yeah. um there, there was i have a i collect political buttons and, and one of the buttons i have is is um i forget it's, it's the 95 club i think and it's um your late husband art phillips and silhouette um, I, I guess there was a moment there in, in, after the 1979 election where, where he was, uh, I guess, uh, asked to run for the leadership or considered at least, right? Yes. Um, one of the things in reading Alan Fotheringham over the years is, is I guess, did, did, did he speak French art? No. And so was that one of the reasons why it didn't go further, say? Well, I think it was more than that. But these days that would certainly be a, a no-go but he did get elected for a brief time, nine months, while uh, Joe Clark was the, the prime minister, and most liberals got knocked out in the West. Mm -hmm. So he was there for a short time in opposition. And I can remember he, he started trying with caucus to talk to them about investment and finances, because that was his whole world. And Jean Chrétien at one point said to him, oh, you know, this is so good, that, like, I'm learning things. But for the most part, he found that he hated, he hated the system in Ottawa. He hated the confrontations. He hated um, sort of my team or no team mm -hmm. and, uh, and felt that a number of the elected people really weren't interested in serious policy discussions. They were more interested in how to get elected. So he, he just hated it. So that's why I didn't do it. And that's one of the reasons why you probably didn't run yourself? No. Um, I think federally, uh, uh, family's always been so important to me. And trying to make family work with politics is tough. When I was in municipal politics, my daughter was, I think, three or four. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. Because sometimes your municipal meetings went to, I had one went to 3.30 in the morning. Mm. Like, who's, who's picking up and who's taking care and what if there's an emergency? And then when I ran provincially, that same daughter was off in the United States at university. So I often say to young women, ask me which one was easier. Yeah. <laughs> and so there were times that I thought, well, I, you know, me going to Ottawa, I've got a family here, how does that work? And I just, uh, I felt I couldn't make it work. There's also another moment uh, when, when you were in, um, early, I guess, in your career, and when you were in journalism, you'd interviewed Walter Cronkite, and, and he offered you a job at CBS. Did you, do you look back at that and, and, and perhaps regret that? Well, I don't regret it because I understand the reasons, but it would have been a magnificent opportunity when someone of that stature thinks that you do an okay job. But my son was just little, mm -hmm. and I, at that point I was a single mom, and I thought there is no way that I could take him to New York and have to work really hard, and I, I just didn't think that was fair. So again, it was a family decision. But he lives in New York, well, in New yeah, Jersey so, now. <laughs> so he ended up doing journalism there. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I must thank Chris because Chris was the one who uh, got this interview together when, when I suggested online after watching you Thursday nights that, that you should be interviewed. You should be one of these legends being asked. And uh, he very kindly put us in touch with one another. Yeah, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, you're often asked um, uh, um or you're often cited, I should say, as someone that, that a lot of people admire. Um, 
Who do you admire? Who, who who do you look up to? I mean, not just now, but you know, growing up, say, were, were there people role models say that you wanted to emulate? You know, there weren't when I was growing up, and that's just a comment on the times. Uh, wherever I worked, I tended to be the only woman. There might be a secretary, but in terms of production or um, interviewing or on air, you know, I was often the only woman around. And so I didn't have somebody that I could say, oh, gosh, when I grow up, that's what I wanted to be. I never even thought about journalism or television. It never occurred to me. Of course, there were no journalism schools. Mm. I was sort of told you could be a teacher or a nurse. So, uh, so much of my career is accidental. Opportunities that came, and I was willing to take a chance and do my best. I'm always grateful that CTV has no archives from that period. <laughs> because I was a teenage kid, for heaven's sakes, and they put me on television. And it was black and white television, and they painted your face almost orange because of the lights. And, uh, I mean, I knew nothing. And just, you know, would make my mistakes on air and learn a little bit each time as I went and learn a bit more. But, um, yeah, I didn't have any role model to say I wanted to emulate. Yeah, and it also seems like you didn't have a plan growing up, which you've alluded to already. (laughs) I didn't. And in fact, even though I was doing television when I was in high school and then through university, I uh, I always thought I'll go to university, the light will come on, and I'll I'll know what I want to do with my life. Well, the light never came on, (laughs) and I just kept going along and did television for so many years and then took up uh, other opportunities along the way but yeah. yeah I never had a plan and I do think that's one of the the problems many of our university students have there's so much pressure on them to be thinking about what job and how they're going to get there and what degree they need and you have to um, I would have missed all my opportunities if I had tried to plan ahead or mm. had a straight line and so I try to get them to be open when my daughter went to UCLA for undergrad, they had a different weekend for parents' orientation mm-hmm. from the kids. And so went down, and the head of UCLA at that time came and spoke to us. It wasn't a, a huge group of parents. And he said, this is my cell number. I want you to have it, and I want you to phone any time you're worried because your kids are away and whatnot. And then he said, um, how many here are lawyers? And a whole lot of hands went up. And they said, how many of your kids are going to go into law? The same hands went up. And then he said, uh, you know, something about some other profession. He said, now I want to tell you what we believe. We believe that kids haven't yet had enough experience to know what they really want to do. And we're going to try to expose them to all kinds of different professions and all kinds of studies. And I implore you as parents not to pressure your kids to do what you did because it may be right for them or it may not be. And I've I've carried that in my mind always that, you know, you've just got to let kids find their way, expose them as much as you can to opportunities, but don't predetermine because our family always has, fortunately, We've got no doctors in our family, so when Sam wanted to be a doctor, no pressure there. (laughs) When Christopher wanted to be a journalist, I did have some moments of thinking, oh, it's hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you like as a grandparent? I hope that I'm um, loving and fun, and I hope 
that uh, there are ways of instilling values that are subtle and and indirect. My I've got four grandkids that mm-hmm. are just fantastic, and they're in ages from eight to seventeen. And they are all so close, so tight. They live in different parts of America. But, boy, we've managed to keep that family relationship really strong. And, of course, they don't call me Grandma. They call me Lola. Uh, so I'm Lola. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were a couple of times where um, in your career where, where you took on a, a position um, uh, for a dollar a year. Um, advising Christy Clark in her office, and, and uh, you, you chaired a committee for Jim Flaherty. Yes. Um, I've always wondered about uh, uh, these people that take jobs for a dollar. Do they actually give you a dollar? Well, the funny thing is, Jim Flaherty did, and he. I, I just thought Jim Flaherty was just a magnificent federal finance minister, and he came and asked me to do this chairing of his small group yeah. right at the start of the recession. And the group was just the elite in business, like the Jimmy Pattisons, the uh-huh. Irvings, the Demarays. And so it was a very small group, and we were all doing it technically for a dollar a year. When we finished, he had framed a loony for all of us <laughs> and said, thank you. Christy never paid me a dollar. <laughs> but it is part of public service that I wish we did more of in Canada, the way Jimmy Pattison took on Expo. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of talent in our business and uh, education elite that, you know, would love to contribute in some way, and they may be in a position that they don't need to do it on a salary basis, but there's a wealth of of skill and knowledge that we should be able to use in our public system. You mentioned the Trilateral Commission a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're still able to do that in terms of, say, contributing and, and advising people on policy, right? Yes, and... I was chair, the Canada chair, for a number of years, and that really is a lot of work on top of my busyness with public policy and panels and things. Mm-hmm. And so I managed uh, two years ago to convince Jeffrey Simpson to take on chair, and so I am simply a member now, and so that's so much easier because I can take part in all the policy discussions and I don't have to be responsible for organizing meetings and fees and everything. Jeffrey's doing that. So, uh, I, yeah, I really enjoy it. I had to, this past couple of weeks, just after the midterms in the mm-hmm. United States, I chaired a panel uh, for the trilateral, so it's an international group, but it was on the American election, yeah. which is a bit funny, you know, a Canadian, mm-hmm. but at least I'm neutral. But I had a couple of very, very skilled, knowledgeable people, one with uh, lots of experience in the Democratic Party and one in the Republican Party. And the funny thing is we assumed the panel would be, okay, what's next? Now that we know either the Republicans did a sweep or they didn't or whatever, but of course we didn't know. So revise the the panel plan. What we'll do is, okay, here's one scenario. How's that going to look? Here's another scenario. How's that going to look? But they were so skilled and knowledgeable. It was um, was terrific to do. But... You know, public policy is a love of mine, and and it's always it's more difficult than anybody thinks because you can't just have a great idea, but it's got to be a great idea that is possible. Yeah. And that's where a lot of ideas get lost. So through this work that you do now uh, in terms of, 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 say, formulating or thinking about public policy, what, what are some of the challenges that we're going to be facing in the next little while? I mean, people are talking about a recession, say. Um, are, are we, say, in British Columbia, in Canada, are we, are we 
Uh, is it going to be bad before it gets um, better? I think it'll get rough. I don't know if it'll get bad, but there are lots of issues we're facing, and uh, especially because we're in North America, we're quite aware of what's going on in the States. I think what happened with closing schools, none of my grandkids went to school for two years. Mm. And that's fine because they've got parents who are able to you know, help them along. But what has worried me is what happens to the families who are not so well off, or maybe they've got family problems, mm-hmm. or maybe they don't have computers, or maybe they don't care. And all of those kids that is a generation we'll watch grow up now have lost so much and if we were worried about inequality in the past and i i've been really worried about it i think it's going to get worse and that's the societal issue that i think we've got to face and there's something else that's happening in the labor force that i can't put my finger on yet um, part of it is that the time that government supported a lot of people where they just stayed home and didn't have to work. And so people were thinking more about their values, and is this really the kind of work I want to do, and how do I get more balance in my life? And I don't think our labor force mechanisms have adjusted yet, but I see just a huge change. And even in British Columbia, you look at our family doctors, and so many of them, even though they may be trained as family doctors, are saying, you know, I can't have a life this way. I'm going to go on contract maybe in a hospital or I'm going to do this or that rather than be available anytime any patient needs me. So we've got to, we've got to start adjusting and catch up with the, the feelings of the mostly younger generation that are not happy with, okay, you want to be a lawyer, then you've got to work 24 hours a day for five years and, you, you know, forget it. If you have a marriage or family, there's they're secondary. That's not going to work, I don't think, with this generation. So then I wonder then, go back to the, the, one of the earlier um, questions I had in terms of the discourse, um, lowering as it has, th- does that mean there's a, there's a, a vacuum when it comes to leadership, and, and not just politically but elsewhere, and especially in this country? I think there's a huge vacuum in leadership, and I think it's at every level, and I think it's in a lot of our nonprofit organizations, and uh, certainly in our political organizations. And uh, if you don't have leadership, then how do you know where you're going? And then I'm wondering, then, how do we fix that? Well, I think part of it is I keep trying to speak to younger people to say, open your minds to the possibilities of, of leadership and participating and caring about others and, and how your talents can best be used. But I'm one little voice in, a, in a, a group of, what, 50 people each time? And that's that's not changing the world. So our television networks are not doing it. Mm. And newspapers are disappearing. And people like you are doing it. So how are we going to get a civilized discourse going again? One of the main shows that I do watch every Sunday is Fareed Zakaria. Mm on CNN. He's one of the few interviewers that I think is doing a really good job. He listens. He obviously asks intelligent questions, but he's dealing with international topics as well as national. He's not down some rabbit hole on the same thing all the time. But that's, uh, I'm really reaching, 
And so how how do we do this? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, too many shows are, are, are you get someone from the left or you get someone from the right, and I think producers think it's a, a successful show if they start shouting at each other. Um, I like having long-form conversations with people, and, and I enjoy that sort of listening and watching those things. Um, and they can be from different points of view, um, you know, you can, but you can spend, say, half an hour or 45 minutes with one person, and then, you know, the next show, half an hour and 45 minutes on the other side. But you don't have to bring them in together and, and start, you know, hoping that they <laughs> tear each other from limb to limb, right? One of the th- things that I I'm so agree with you, and one of the things that I did or tried to do when I was chair of CBC was talk to them about the people they were using on panels. Mm. And exactly what you said, they would always say, oh, we always get someone from the right and someone from the left. I said, absolutely, I know you do that, and you've left out 90% of the population who are in the middle right. and who have nuanced ideas. And we're not talking to those people at all. And so, I mean, I had all kinds of little things I tried to change. Diversity was one of them to make sure that when I walked into a, a newsroom, it didn't look all a certain age, all white, mostly male. And they've really done, everybody's done an amazing job on diversity, I think. It's not done yet, but boy, the changes from the time that I started are huge. But the one funny one that I always tried to get was Peter Mansbridge doing the national news. Mm-hmm. The national news always had a slide behind him of the Toronto CN Tower. <laughs> and I said, CN Tower is not national. Yeah. But I couldn't get that changed. <laughs> Speaking of archives, um, you, you, you are on YouTube. Um, there are a couple of interviews, actually. Well, there, there are a couple of interviews with Jack Webster, which, which, are, which are fun, because that's your, your municipal uh, time in politics. But um, there's uh, one with Helen Forrest, who I mentioned to you in the email that, that uh, I quite enjoyed. Um, there, there are people in the comments who are wondering what, what that show was and, and who the host was. Um, was, that, was that for the CBC or CTV? Or? I expect it was CBC, yeah. but I didn't look it up. I never have looked up anything about myself anywhere. Yeah. So I don't know, um, like I'm obviously not on any of the LinkedIn or any of those sites, but I also don't know what's out there in Wikipedia or whatever. Christopher once in a while sends me something, and he <laughs> sent me an interview I did of David Letterman. Right, yeah, I was going to bring that up. Because that's, <laughs> and that... I thought, oh my gosh, I barely remember it. Yeah, that was a young David Letterman, um, and um, it, it was 90 minutes live. I guess we were filling in for Zosky. Yeah. And um, he does his stand-up, and he comes to panel with you, and it's Otto Preminger is the other guest. Yes. And um, he's quite funny, actually. You know, it's the act that he did on the Carson show. Yeah. Um, but, but he has a, a funny line um, where you're asking him, I think, about autographing things for fans and the sort, and, and he says, oh, at the hotel I was signing things. Uh, I guess Fra- the Francis Fox story was at, at the time. Yeah. And so he <laughs> makes that joke. And, um, you know, he gets he gets a sort of a mild laugh from the audience. Um, <laughs> but it, it, did you remember what what Letterman was like in, in those days? Uh, just that he was, he was fun. Yeah. And I liked him a lot, but I... I didn't like watching myself. <laughs> I don't like watching myself. <laughs> the other thing about the Helen Force interview, for, for people listening, she, she was a big band singer back in the day and the, during the Warriors. Um, 
I find that fascinating that you're asking her about her career. You, 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 you weren't even born yet when she was. Oh, I know. And in those early days, I was doing a lot of celebrity interviews when they would pass through Toronto. And so uh-huh. I remember doing Joan Crawford and all kinds of um, big name, interesting people. But I, when I look back at it, I think I was a teenager, right? Yeah. <laughs> what did I know? Yeah, I was just thinking that you didn't listen to that stuff. So I mean, I just I, yeah. but it's fascinating that you, you you were able to ask her about her career and the sort. Um, you gave an interview, I think it was with Mike Smith, um, just as you were leaving provincial politics, and in, in, that's fifteen years ago now, I think. Um, around there, I can't do math. Um, and you told him that you'd never retire. Fifteen years later, is that the case still? Oh, absolutely. No, I didn't, that's why I'm so involved in public policy in all kinds of ways, and and doing legends has just been terrific. But I do panels. I do a lot of public policy work with the Business Council of BC and, of course, with the Trilateral and others. I, that's the sort of thing that I hope that I can continue to do forever. I help uh, a lot of organizations that are going through um, strategy revisiting, uh, especially academic institutions, because I've been chancellor at two universities, and mm-hmm. so some experiences uh, that are positive and negative and can give advice. But I don't do any of it for 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 dollars. I do it just because I like to help and hope that maybe I've got something to offer. You said a moment ago you don't you don't like looking back, but but so, so do you care as to how you'll be remembered? Yes. Yes, I would hope it's um, just someone who believed in public service. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of people will 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 think they'll think of you that as today. I, I so appreciate you taking the time to chat. As I said earlier, you're someone that I've always wanted to talk to, and, and I'm I'm glad we got the chance to do it. I, I so appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Joe. You're a wonderful interviewer. <laughs> thank you very much. And we'll watch you Thursday nights. Can you tell us about some of the names that we might expect in the coming weeks? I don't have the schedule in my head because we keep switching it around a bit, but uh-huh. there are people like Joy McPhail, um, Beverly McLaughlin, of course, we've just put yeah. out, but uh, there are other people that are coming that will be of interest, I think. Ujjal yeah. Desange. Um, Michael Dane, we just did, of course. Dempsey Bob, who's a magnificent artist. I don't know if you know his work, but if you have a chance to look it up. First Nations from northwestern BC, uh, like his, he had a show at the O'Dane Museum that would take your breath away. The complexity of his carvings and taking carving in a new direction. His story is interesting because he's now in his 70s, but when he started, he said, like his wife would say, you've got to get a job because we have to put food on the table. Now, of course, he's so internationally successful. But he said no one in Canada would buy his work. So he <laughs> didn't become successful until Americans started buying his work. And then Canadians said, oh, oh, let's have a look, right? <laughs> Isn't that the case with, with a lot of uh, sectors, where it was Canadians especially? I don't know, but I guess for artists... You know, if you do get an international blessing, it does raise, raise your profile. And But he was very forthright about it. That mm. He wouldn't be successful at all if it weren't for the Americans. Indeed, indeed. Thanks for this, Carol. Thank you, Joe. BC Legends airs Thursday nights uh, at 9.30 on Czech t- television, as well as uh, you can see it anytime on the Czech Plus app. Carol Taylor joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.